Hello and welcome to Rooftop, the brand new podcast brought to you by the NFRC. My name is Phil Campbell. And I'm Pip Applegate. Due to COVID-related restrictions, we are not able to go to our recording studio, so this episode is recorded remotely, so please bear with us for any sound quality issue. So on this podcast, we will interview industry figures, thought leaders and technical experts to give you all you need to know to ensure you are leading in roofing excellence. And we'll bring you regular features which will include things like topical news discussions, technical tips and guidance to help you stay safe on site. So let's crack on with some news, Phil. Um, What's the first story that you've got for us? Well, it actually relates to an upcoming tax change, which I know fills our listeners with joy. It's Mm -hmm. actually quite important to quite a lot of people in our sector. Okay. So what's the background on it? Well, it relates to a tax change called IR35, um, which sounds like a mouthful, but actually relates to um, how self-employed contractors um, um, pay their tax to HMRC. Okay, I've heard a little bit about this, but exactly what has changed? Well, um, the Chancellor um, announced a delay to the changes, which are meant to have come in uh, this year, and they will now be coming in uh, next April. Okay. Um, there were some rumours going around that the changes will be delayed again due to the impact of COVID-19. Um, but the, the Chancellor and the HMRC have confirmed that the changes will indeed still be going ahead on the 6th of April 2021. Okay. And in your sort of views, what do roofers actually need to do to prepare for it? So just to give a bit of background about the IR35, also known as off-payroll tax rules, um, essentially, um, at the moment, if you work through your own company, um, so ABC Limited, um, you can determine your own status. So if you work for various different companies, um, you can determine that you are what's called outside IR35. And that means that you can pay tax as a company rather than as an employee. Um, The problem was there were quite a few people who were using this as a way of um, avoiding tax. And they were actually working mostly for one client. Um, They were working like an employee, so they were being Mm -hmm. given tasks. They had uniforms to wear for that employee and that employer. Right. Um, and so, really, if you if you looked at them, they just looked like any other employee. But what they were doing, they were only paying tax um, as a self-employed person rather than as an employed person. Okay. Um, so HMRC introduced this this policy called IR35 to try and tackle this, um, and um, it never really um, it never really achieved what they wanted it to do. And you continue to have a lot of people working outside IR35. So a few years ago, they changed the rules in the public sector so that if you uh, we're working for a, an organization um, rather than you determining your status and um, they didn't change it to the client determining the status of the uh, the contractor okay those rules are now going to be extended into the private sector as well for anybody working for a, a medium or large organization so that's anyone with a turnover of more than 10 million pounds uh, or a balance sheet of over 5 million 5.1 million pounds or if more than 50 employees. So if you are working um, as a company for for a company of that size, 
um, the rules will change next April and your client will now decide whether you are inside or outside R35 and whether you pay um, taxes as an employee or taxes as a limited company. Okay, so potentially quite a lot of impact for some of our members. Um, whereabouts could our members head to to find out some more information on it? Uh, yes. Yeah. So, um, first of all, what I would say is to go onto HMRC's website and search Check Employment Status for Tax. It's called CEST. And what that will do, ask you a number of different questions, and then that will help you determine what your IR35 status is. Um, so, that's a good way to, to kind of um, make a start. And finally, we actually do offer a um, free tax helpline to members um, um, for a, a company called The Tax Bridge, a lady called Liz Bridge. Um, and we would, I would encourage any NFRC members to call that number and she'd be able to give you any advice that you need. Fantastic. Thanks very much. So, Pip, what have you got for us? So I thought it was quite apt following on from last um, episode of Rooftop when we spoke to Noble Francis of the CPA to pick up on a report which they have recently um, issued. OK, let's hear some more. So the report is titled Regional Construction Hotspots in Great Britain 2020, and it provides a forward-looking analysis of construction activity. Um, it, it basically analyzes construction contract awards at a high level, uh, firstly identifying pockets of growth or contraction, i.e. hotspots or cold spots, um, in a regional sort of activity, and, and secondly to offer sort of a forward-looking indication of growth by region and by sector. Okay, so what is meant by hot spots or cold spots? Okay, <laughs> good question. Um, so basically, they're a way of identifying um, regions where contract awards in 2019 were significantly above, i.e., a hot spot, or significantly below, i.e., a cold spot, when compared to previous years. So therefore, they're highlighting pockets of activity or contraction in construction industry in the near future. Um, and basically, by using data on contract awards over 2019, that report, the report sorry, looks at construction work that lies ahead rather than reporting on activity in the past. And obviously, with this year's economic developments being somewhat unprecedented, um, project tracking data has also helped to understand the effect that the pandemic has had on things. So I imagine what um, all of our listeners are wondering is, uh, what are some of the key report findings? Okay, so... Before I get on to those, it's worth noting that there are some results which are very much positive, but mm -hmm. may not actually be classed as a hotspot just because of how their contract award compares to previous years. Right. Um, so, for example, um, Manchester was in the top 10 largest regions in terms of the value of contracts awarded in 2019. However, this was about 23 or so percent below the value of contracts awarded in, the, in that region in the previous year, and also in line with the long-term average. So whilst it's a large source of construction work, it's not classed as a hotspot region. Okay, so uh, can you give us some hotspot info? <laughs> sure. So good news. There are some clear hotspots for upcoming construction activity over the next six to 12 months across Great Britain. Yeah, that's encouraging. Yeah, absolutely. Um, perhaps unsurprisingly, when looking at the value of the contract awards in 2019, commercial projects in Westminster, Tower Hamlets, Lewisham and Southwark meant that London obviously dominates with these three regions alone totaling a value of £1.1 billion. Oh. 
Yeah. So um, following on from that, um, more interesting, interestingly, perhaps um, West Cumbria recorded the largest largest growth in contract awards in 2019, with an increase of 580 percent from the previous year. Wow. Falkirk, yeah, Falkirk was the only broad hotspot in 2019. So that's looking at contracts, uh, contract awards in each of the three main mm. construction sectors of residential, commercial, and infrastructure, and these were significantly above the long-term average. Mm. Okay, that's, that's that sounds like really good. Um, but are there any other key findings you wanted to share? Yeah, so I mean, obviously the report has way more detailed information than I've just mentioned, and it's mm. it's actually quite an interesting read. There are heaps of tables um, covering all the different hotspots and cold spots by region and by sector. It's also worth noting that construction hotspots hot may also show, due to a large single project in one sector, um, such as like a you know a high value transport or utilities project, um, where contracts are awarded, but they also take time to build out. Some might view these as actually skewing the results, but they still represent sort of a significant driver of regional growth and activity and also show to be a driver of those hotspots throughout the country. Um, and finally, I suppose, with the exception of Wales, that has none, construction cold spots do obviously feature um, across Great Britain. However, end on a high, there are more hot spots than cold spots identified for the three main construction areas of residential, commercial and infrastructure. So a little bit of good news for these hard times. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and in terms so of... Oh, gone. Sorry. Go ahead, Pip. Go on. <laughs> I was just going to say, um, if if our members sort of want to find out a bit more information, they can head to the CPA website, um, where they can download a copy of the report. Just what I was going to ask. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thanks, Pip. So, Phil, let's let's crack on with the last story for the episode. What have you got for us? Yeah. So, um, obviously, the the temperatures are starting to plummet, and 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 winter is definitely upon us. Um, but that, what does that mean for for, for roofers and, and those working um, outside? Well, Marley, um, the manufacturer, have um, put out some new advice, which NFRC have supported, um, and it's around winter working. Okay, and in terms of roofing, <laughs> there's there might be some obvious ones, but what kind of risks are there out there for our roofers? Well, quite a few, actually. Um, so some of the obvious ones are you know, strong winds, freezing cold temperatures, snow, ice, uh, rain. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's also other ones, you know, just things like um, slips and falls. Um, but ones we don't often think about, you know, prolonged exposure to cold um, can, can bring on more colds and bronchitis, mm -hmm. um, asthma, painful joints, chillblains and fatigue. Um, even in extreme cases, um, if, if workers who work for outside for long periods of time and they don't have the right PPE could suffer hypothermia or even frostbite. Um, so, you know, it's, it does sound like um, all doom and gloom, but uh, these are all things that roofing contractors need to bear in mind for when they're managing their, their staff on site. Absolutely. And obviously you want to avoid if possible. Um, obviously hot on topic at the moment. What about COVID? Yes. Yeah, so obviously this winter, you've got a double whammy. Um, could you have to worry about winter working at the same time as having to work in a COVID safe way? Um, so um, what um, we would advise is not to compromise on your COVID safe working practices um, um, because it's winter. Um, so, for example, um, where people have to congregate inside to, to make sure that you know, um, social distancing is still maintained. 
um, if you're working in people's homes to continue to uh, have your lunch inside your van rather than in the customer's premises. Um, and also just continuing to, to, to use PPE as well and to make sure that um, you are you know, maintaining that social distance. And any other preparations that you could suggest reef contractors think about? Yeah, so for in terms of um, for contractors, um, what I would recommend is that they review the relevant policies related to COVID. So that's the, the um, Structure and Leadership Council site operating procedures, but also the NFRC guidance, which we have you know, adapted to be relevant to, to roofing um, contractors. Mm-hmm. Um, we would also um, ask them to ensure that they have addressed um, any winter hazards that they've um, identified and mitigated those. Make sure your staff have got the relevant PPE. Um, and if you're reusing any PPE to make sure it's cleaned after use and not shared between workers, um, okay. any single use PPE should be disposed of and, and not reused. And finally, just um, some, some common sense, make sure you... Mm. You pay attention to the weather forecast you know they're not always 100 accurate but it gives you a good indication of what's coming um and you know pay attention to particular to working at height platforms um and do not work on any roofs in in icy conditions um yeah. this is actually a requirement of the working at height regulations um and if it's windy make sure you look at the nfrc guidance on on roofing and cladding in windy conditions which you can find on my website fantastic that all sounds really good yeah, and um, I would advise um, checking out um, Marley's uh, website as well, um, which gives more advice around winter working. Okay, fantastic. That's really cool. Thank you. So today we're joined by Richard Miller, Head of Qualifications and Standards at NFRC. Welcome, Richard. Good morning, Phil. Good morning, Pip. Morning. So, Richard, um, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do at NFRC? Certainly can, Phil. Um, so, as you alluded to, my role within the NFRC is Head of Qualification and Standards. Um, primarily, I have a, a couple of main roles that I'm carrying out at this moment in time. Um, you would have seen quite a lot of publicity around at the moment, and probably the biggest part of the role currently is the RUSA accreditation programme that we're working on. And that is about ensuring that we have, um, you know, consistency in in progressive development of operatives within the industry, ensuring that we've got a standardised approach um, to that, but also ensuring that as part of that process that we've listened to to what the industry needs are, not only as of today, but in the future as well. Um, And that's also takes into account a lot of work streams that are also happening um, uh, within the wider construction remit as well. Also, as part of that fundamental role, again, qualifications and, and standards, um, it's, it's about having an approach to overall quality. So there's a lot within my role that includes um, inspection and audit. So I carry out uh, you know, uh, periodic internal audits, um, predominantly for our competent roofer scheme as well, ensuring that obviously we are providing the service um, to, to our external clients. Um, and then for our membership inspection criteria as well, Phil, it's also about ensuring that we've got a standardised, consistent approach to that as well. So I think we can sum it up overall in, in terms of looking at a standardised approach to quality overall uh, of the services that we offer as the, as, as the Roofing Federation. Mm-hmm. And so I believe that you started off your career on the tools. If so, what made you consider a career in roofing, Rich? 
Well, Pip, I'm going to tell just a little bit of a brief story on this one here because, you know, I can relate to a lot of, uh, you know, to, to how a lot of other roofers, you know, fell into the industry. And I use the word fell. Um, I actually didn't, you know, start my career out wanting to be a roofer at all. Um, it wasn't even on the horizon. In fact, I didn't even know what roofing was about. Um, even within the wider construction. So I was I started my working career as you do as sort of a 16, 17 year old, unsure of what I wanted to do. Found mm. myself in, in a factory uh, and in an environment actually, in an environment that wasn't comfortable at all. Um, and I knew I had to make a change and and having conversations with with certain family members, you know, they were telling me about getting a trade, et cetera. And I actually, you know, ironically went down to the job centre once and just seen on, a, as it was back then, a little bit of a white card on the board, roofing apprentice, and I'm going to say £35 a week at that time. <laughs> and, and, and showing your age now. <laughs> and that was, that was a significant, you know, drop in, 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 in income for, for what I was doing. But it was, a, it was almost like I had a eureka moment at that time to know that actually sometimes you've got to take steps backwards in order to, you know, make big steps forward. Um, and it, it was the best thing I ever done. Um, I then went and joined a, a real small company. It was a, it was a one-man band company. You know, learned a lot from that gentleman at the time and then subsequently moved on to a bigger organisation and then completed, uh, you know, a fully-fledged um, apprenticeship in 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 built-up felt roofing, as it was known at the time now, as we now refer to RBM. And, you know, the rest is history. I just went from strength to strength and, and I've enjoyed every aspect within the industry um, that I've done to date. Um, my work took me up to Scotland and back as well. And now I find myself doing what I'm doing in the roofing industry for the NFRC. Um, so it's it's been a journey. <laughs> <laughs> so Rich, just to pick you up on that. So, you know, obviously going from those those kind of um, those beginnings to where you are now, there's that's like a missing piece. So how did you get involved in the whole skills and training part of roofing? So it's really, uh, you know, really interesting feeling in, in the sense that, you know, I've done a number of years on the tools. I went into sort of charge and supervisory, but always remained on the tools. I was I was an always an on the site supervisor. Um, and and I, actually, ironically, from my apprenticeship, something actually went wrong with um, the, the qualification element of it. They never granted me the qualification at the time. So actually, I ended up having uh, had to be reassessed uh, sort of a number of years down the line for, for my vocational qualification. And I actually just got talking to, to the, the assessor at the time in terms of, you know, how do you get involved in this? And he actually put me in contact with somebody at the CITB. Had a few conversations with people at the CITB. And before I knew it, I actually then was, was, was a contractor within CITB, now beginning to give something back to my industry to support people through their upskilling and their achievements vocationally. So it started off in that particular way. And, you know, it, I, I then just went from strength to strength, if you like, in terms of assessment through to verification to then product manager. And as you keep scaling on and scaling on, and, you know, I ended up sort of um, here at the NFRC as head and qualifications and standards. And as, as I'll keep reiterating, looking to give back. Oh, that's brilliant. I wondered, actually, you've mentioned roof cert already, but I wondered if you could tell us a bit more about how it actually got underway and what sort of got it started in the first place. I can. So, you know, historically over a number of years, and this this goes back to my CITB times and also with my NFRC times as well and, and beyond that, um, the roofing industry, as well as the wider construction, have, all, have, all, have always cited, um, you know, a lack of, of, of skills within the industry, a, a real shortage um, of knowledge and practical experience. 
but also about not being able to attract new talent into construction and into roofing. Mm-hmm. Um, so in 2016, um, NFRC uh, with CITB um, created a piece of research um, looking at some of the fundamentals, um, you know, fundamental constraints within the industry to actually mm-hmm. see if that, you know, if there was a way forward with them. Um, the, the the research concluded. Um, everyone's thoughts that the image of roofing wasn't where it should be, that there is a skill shortage, that we don't do enough to track, attract the right talent into the industry or any talent for, for one to a better degree. And then actually, the you know, the core recommendation that came out of that research was we needed to professionalise the industry. Roofing yes. gets a hard time. Um, and But, you know, on the flip side, creates some fantastic opportunities. There's some fantastic work produced. Um, but we're not seen as as uh, as up there with some of the other you know subsectors in construction. So you know yeah. things need to be done, and that's ultimately where Roofsert was born. So Richard, um, listening, and um, we've got roofing operatives, we've got owners of roofing companies, um, you know people from across the industry, roof training groups. Why why should they get involved? What's in it for them? So Phil, I think if we go back to the principles of the of the research that I've mentioned uh, just there, this is about sort of eliminating and mitigating all those issues that we that, that we identified. You know, about promoting the right image for roofing and not one of of sort of the cowboy roofer just up on a ladder with no help and safety that we see time and time again. This is about developing their workforce. This is about developing individuals, but also about recognising those individual skill sets as well. From a company point of view, Phil, you know, there's a lot of investment that's made um, on upskilling and vocational achievement within roofing that's never formally recognised and doesn't support those businesses when it comes to, let's say, procurement of work, for instance. Now, what the Rooster Accreditation Programme will aid is a standardised approach to that. It will get deeper into the wider marketplace and hopefully becomes, you know, it becomes something that's specified in the future and then gives an angle, you know, a, a, a competitive advantage then to, to those organisations that have, you know, have been the early adopters, if you like. Mm-hmm. So there's some really sort of strong reasons for people to be certainly getting involved. Where do you see the future of the industry and, and how do you think or how do you see RoofCert fitting in with that? So, so I think that there's one thing to, to note, Pip, from the offer is that you know what we've what we've looked to do in the last 20 years is something that's not clearly working, and that's just finding people that you know family members or friends of friends and trying to attract mm. them into the industry. What we've got to do now, and what what RoofCert will aim to achieve is again to to put the image of roofing into into in the area where it needs to be to make mm-hmm. it attractive to those thinking about a career in construction, but then in particular in roofing, and that actually we have the right workforce for the the right kind of jobs in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, at the moment, at this moment in time, we know that the you know the average age of a roofing operative is 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 50 plus, and we have to do something to change that, and we have to act fast. And Rusa is a is a vehicle in which that can be achieved. Fantastic. And, and Rich, um, just tying that in, you know, obviously we're seeing a lot of headlines at the moment around uh, building safety and, and fire safety. So how does Rusa tie into that, and where do you see that going in future? Well, I think the direction of travel is very clear from all the reports that I've I've been reading of late, and and, and that is one of um, qualifying once practicing for life will not continue. There's there's an absolute appetite for reassessment of skills, um, and I think that's I think that's absolutely right. I think in an ever changing environment that we've got now in society, let alone just in our in our in our working days, things change on a weekly, monthly, yearly basis, and actually skill sets and knowledge need to adapt accordingly. 
So RUFSA accreditation programme will seek to identify the current level of knowledge and skills as of today. It will implement the right level of CPD moving forward and therefore will support the industry in continuation of its professionalism and ensuring that the right up-to-date skills are, are, are across the industry, mm. which ultimately, Phil, Pip, should lead to you know better productivity and right first-time mentality. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so with the regards to there's obviously a lot of content on the website that people can go and have a look at. In terms of cost, how does it work for an individual or an organisation looking to put somebody through roof cert? So Pip, at the moment, we, we with the NFRC and CITB are co-funding up to 2,000 places um, wow. initially for initial um, accreditation. Um, there is also other supportive um, funding and grants available to um, to the industry in terms of those elements that make up the training and some vocational assessment as well. Um, but those places, people will say, are starting to go fast. Um, mm -hmm. So again, I would I would say to anybody thinking of getting their team on board, um, do it now while there is some funded places still available. Yeah. Um, and yeah. Crack on. <laughs> yeah. One more question. It's just really about how this fits into the kind of wider skills landscape because obviously there's like apprenticeships you can do you can do um you know other courses other health and safety training what what how does research fit in with that i think it's important to note here phil that you, you know what one of the things in roofing and we have had historically is you know a really good apprenticeship program um but that's where it tends to stop. We don't tend to then look at further career development within the industry. It's certainly not been that relevant. So, you know, the idea in a future career of a roofer would be how we're identifying people from, from the early ages of between 14 to 16, maybe with, with certain courses that's already out there at this moment in time. How we then encourage those individuals to go into to roofing apprenticeships um, under the new standards. And then following on from that, and then subsequently after, let's say maybe an improvers year, um, that those those operatives then start to embark on the RUSA accreditation journey that will then support them throughout their career to upskill and stay ahead of the game. So thanks so much, Richard, for giving us some great information there on RoofCert. I think it's particularly good timing to get people registered at the moment with that funding being in place. And hopefully you can join us again in the future to give us an update on everything. Pip, I will look forward to joining you again in the future. And thank you very much for your questions. And Phil, thank you very much for the opportunity to discuss it today. Thank you. So now time for Gary's technical tip. We are joined by Gary Walpole, Safety, Health and Environment Officer at NFRC. Welcome, Gary. Uh, afternoon, Phil. How are you? I'm not too bad, thank you, Gary. So what have you got for us yeah. today? Yeah, I've got a good one this this uh, for this podcast. Um, following a roof fire at a school in Nottinghamshire earlier this year, the NFRC technical team, in contribution with um, industry experts, mm. have produced a safety alert to highlight the increased fire risk of class buildings, especially when carrying out hot works. Now. The Consortium of Local Authority Special Programme, which is abbreviated and more commonly referred to as CLASP, was formed in England in 1957 to combine the resources of local authorities with the purpose of developing a prefabricated school building programme. Now, CLASP is one type of consortia school construction, along with others 
such as Scola, Rosla, and Mace, and many, many more, which are all lightweight in design. Now, the main concern with the design is the open void above the suspended ceiling, which can potentially span the entire school. If you are using a gas torch to install a flashing under a window, for instance, now you shouldn't be doing that, but this is for instance, and the flame breaches the void, once the fire starts in this type of school building, it tends to result in rapid fire loss. Mm. And it's also worth bearing in mind that renovations of these buildings can conceal the original construction and it may also add new combustible components such as insulation and cladding. So the safety alert highlights actions you should take when working on class schools, like avoiding the risk and using flame-free alternative products and reducing the risks by strictly following the safety torch guidelines mm. and selecting flame-free um, alternatives in high-risk areas. Yeah. So it sounds like a really important document, Gary. <laughs> it is. It is because, you know, it's something that we perhaps haven't been aware of, you know, taken into consideration the design, but it's obviously very important that we do that. And it, it just highlights how important our Safe to Torch campaign is mm-hmm. and why people should be following the guidelines within that campaign. Well, great. Well, I encourage everyone to download that document and, and take a read through and also to check out the Safe to Torch website. Thank you, Gary. That's great, Gary. Thanks ever so much. So that's it for this episode. Thank you to our guest, Richard Miller, and to Gary for his top technical tip. We hope you've enjoyed the episode and that you tune in for future editions. Please make sure you subscribe and do share this with friends and colleagues. So it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.